Good morning. It's good to see you all um, from back up here again. Um, yeah, that's a blessing. Uh, I've been on sabbatical for uh, two months now and uh, have been back for a little bit and am blessed to be able to step back up here with you guys by God's grace. Um, so to that end, we'll be continuing in John 5 this morning and actually closing it out. Um, John 5, verses 30 through 47. John 5, verses 30 through 47. This morning we'll be continuing in Jesus' conversation with the Jewish people that are seeking his death because of his statement of equality with God the Father and also the recent miracle we saw performed on the Sabbath. Uh, This is something that has Jesus in hot water with those who claim to know him, or at least claim to know the word that speaks of him, and uh, we see continuing this week his model of submission that we got to see last week. We saw last week the state of Christ's authority, yet how he humbled himself under the will of the Father, even to the point where it was stated, and as it will be stated again this morning, that Jesus can do nothing on his own without God the Father. For us this morning, what we build off of as we continue to understand what is unfolding in the Gospel of John is that Jesus, the God-man, speaks as God the Father instructs, walks as God directs, and seeks to make much of God's glory. In other words, as Jesus' earthly ministry is unfolding, he bears wholehearted, perfect witness about God the Father. This morning in our text, I believe we will see what it looks like to bear wholehearted witness as Christ does, what it looks like to bear a half-hearted witness about Christ, and the effects of both, both in the church that we read about today, both in the church today, and even our church itself. In our text this morning, we will see Christ's glory on full display and why this life requires that we love him above all else. This is something that is terribly important for us contextually as a church plant in central Georgia, even more so as the new year approaches and it's easy to think of all the things that we hope to do, perhaps all the things that we did not do this past year. As we think even properly about what there is to do, my hope and my aim this morning is for us to see and leave with a better understanding of where we need to start, not just with our hands, not just with our feet, but ultimately our hearts. Amen? You guys with me on that? Awesome. Join me in prayer, and as you are praying, pray for the one next to you, the church abroad, that we would humble ourselves as we see Christ do time and time again in the Gospel of John under the word of the Father, that it would shape us and mold us, that we would come away loving God more and more, not just ready to serve him, to know the next step, but ultimately to rest at his feet before anything else, okay? Father, be with us this morning, as you always are, as you already are, that your church is gathered, and in that we rejoice in your glory that gathers us, that we get to praise you freely, both in right, but also in spiritual dignity that we can worship you as our Father. I pray that we would see this on full display in your scriptures this morning and that we would humble ourselves under them and that it would be a joy to do so, to rest in your shadow. 
I pray for our hearts and minds that they would be open to what you have to say to us, that we would not be quick to read into the text, but that we would allow the text to read into our own hearts, to pull out what needs weeding and to place there what needs planting. We pray this according to your mercy and your grace, according to your will and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Join me in verses 30 through 36. Christ's words, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works of the Father, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. As we pick up in this conversation, what is going on here is Jesus is still being placed on trial, so to speak, uh, by this crowd of Jews asking him, who are you to do these works on the Sabbath? And even more so, who are you to claim equality with God the Father? Now, Jesus, in these verses here, and highlighting that his testimony is far greater than John's, which came to blaze the trail for Christ, nevertheless provides more than the necessary amount of witnesses. I want to stop here, even though we just got started, and help us understand that Jesus could have given full testimony about himself. After all, he is the God-man. He is truth embodied. He did not just know the word in the same synagogues that he was raised up in, inside and out. He was the word put on flesh. He would have been just fine saying, I am who I am as God does because he is God here in this text. Although wrapped in flesh, he is perfection. He is our Messiah. Yet the reason Christ gives not just one, two, but four witnesses here is to be in line with the legal system of the day. This is found in Deuteronomy 19.15. You don't have to flip there. Uh, you can mark it. We got a lot of verses to kind of bounce back and forth on. Um, funny aside here, as I was prepping for this, I saw R.C. Sproul preach the same verses. This is very humbling and daunting, but he took a jab at us Baptists and saying sometimes their churches are like Baptist air conditioning and that how much they flip their Bibles, it produces the AC that they need. That might be necessary in the summer here. We'll see. Nevertheless, the legal system of the day, Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Of course, Christ being the supreme does not just give two or three, but gives four in our text. His witness regarding himself is deferred to John the Baptist, God the Father, Christ's own miracles, and scripture that we will see by way of Moses. Christ has been in this world and is saying to these Jews now, hey, this is the account of my life. I have been in step with everything you all have read about me. I am Christ. 
he's referring here to John's testimony as the trailblazing Baptist, that Christ was coming and he was making a way for him and even reminds the Jews that they were willing for a time to bask in John's light. This reminds us that John and all his wonderment and the great example of faith that he bore was nothing more than that, an example, a light that cast a shadow of the Christ that was to come. A question that I ask myself here for us in the text this morning and also for all involved in this conversation of Christ's works and his person, why defer the witness to anybody at all? This was not due to Christ's lack of ability or willingness. This was, however, as we see in the text for Christ to give an example of how he hoped his enemies to be saved. Read with me again. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I don't want us to lose sight that just because this conversation on a page and even in its delivery seems civil, that those Jesus is talking to were the ones seeking to kill him and would eventually succeed in turning him over to the Romans. All the while, Christ is putting on display complete humility and love first for God and those around him. Others fulfilling the great commandment of Matthew. Catch that again, that Christ is giving a wholehearted witness about himself, first and foremost, because he loves God, the Father, with his whole heart. What this enables him to do is walk peaceably. In this conversation, he does not have to worry about his foot getting caught up in a snare. He does not have to worry about them presenting something he does not know about himself. He can walk peaceably, and him being able to walk peaceably in giving this wholehearted devotion frees him up to leverage his love for the Father for those around him, even those seeking to kill him. That he would seek their salvation as he bears wholehearted witness about himself. Jesus references John as he is very near and dear to those he is speaking to and reminds the people that they have no reason not to approach the son they now stand in front of after basking in the warmth that it cast off back then and John the Baptist. If you could imagine alongside me as I was in prep, just how small the Jewish people might have been feeling in this moment as they might have the dots being connected for them and saying, we did actually stand in John's light. We did listen quite passionately to who he said was coming and no way this guy is it. Imagine how ignorant they must seem standing there with the son of God trying to dispute that he is indeed the son of God. Next we see, as I reference, Christ's own miracles are a testimony about his being God in the flesh. I I love this as it points us to the understanding that miracles in the scope of the church, specifically those of the Old Testament, specifically in those of the Old Testament being those in the Bible, Their greatest work was not just those that were healed, as we've seen in John. It was not just the fact that Jesus drew a crowd to himself. It was not any of the things that happened from this root and why the miracles were so wonderful. Is that it because it peeled back the scales from others' eyes to help them see the magnificence of Christ. 
this is the core of miracles that were performed, that they could see God's glory on display through Christ the Messiah. Supreme. Was it a benefit that those who were sick were brought back to life? Those who were lame were raised up to walk? Yes, absolutely. But as we've seen, Christ's command to them was go and sin no more. This was because they had been raised from more than just a sickness or more than just a physical death, but a spiritual death into spiritual life. They had been given a new heart that now has grounds to bear a wholehearted witness. This is so important for us to see that these miracles, these miracles that we read about back then are just as good for us today. And this is, this is huge for me in the conversation of where's the line stop of miracles? Where does it begin? And not to get too far into that, but I need us to understand that the greatest remedy for a tough Monday at work is not just the day getting over. It could be stopping and pausing in that moment and remembering that God, through a broken man, allowed him to plant a staff in the ground and split a sea. Those miracles are just as good for us today as they were for those who walked in between the ocean. What it does for us is it rekindles this love in our hearts and frees us from just walking like these Jews in a full-headed knowledge with an empty heart. It gives us a desire to bear a wholehearted witness that our God is good, our God is who he says he is, he is as powerful today as he was back then. It also allows us to follow in the steps of Christ's humility and understand that he does indeed use us to not just let it be set amongst us, but to be broadcasted to the entire world. Ultimately, it frees us from ourselves, from a selfish and fickle heart, and frees us as Christ is here to give wholehearted witness about God the Father. Nevertheless, I would say as reading this text and even now, Our flesh does not allow it as much as we may will it within ourselves and we may find ourselves in the party of the Jews here. Read with me verses 37 through 44. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It might just be coming off sabbatical and and being blessed by all that I got to learn and rest and, and understand, but these are perhaps some of the most humbling scriptures in the whole of the Bible. It's important for us to understand here as well that these Jews were not just um, your typical workers They were those who devoted themselves to the word. This is said in Acts 17, 11, as an example and a parallel. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It's important to note here and vital for us as a church, as individuals to understand 
that a desire to read, to be in the word, to, to complete devotions, to, in other words, check that box does not equate to a love of God. It's not a bad thing to desire to be in the scriptures, but if that desire's end is to be more knowledgeable or to be more built up in ourselves and not to be more enthralled with God or more in love with God or more ready to worship God, then we are in great danger of falling in the same boat and having it said to us, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. As we read the text this morning and we see all that we bask in the light of, not that we were around at the same time as John the Baptist, but we have many great saints who speak wonderfully of the God we worship. The late R.C. Sproul I referenced. Prayerfully, you consider your elders here to be those. Elders elsewhere, those nearing the end of their lives now, and John Piper and John MacArthur. Those that have run the race well for quite some time now and are easy for us to consume to go online and pull our favorite sermon and read our favorite books and see our favorite quotes. And while they may stir our hearts up, I have to ask us is does it allow us, does it cause us to submit our hearts all the more out of a supreme love for God? The line for us is not so thin here as it is black and white for Christians. If we consume the things of God, if we seek to know more of God and it does not leave us more in love with God, then our hearts are being hardened against God. This could be for a number of things, whether it is our secret pride that we are seeking to be built up in our own ways, that we are seeking our own will, our own next step, thinking our ways are either in line with God's or perhaps better functionally. And so something that through sabbatical, I had the opportunity to humble myself under an understanding that ministry that we have been given is not a tool in which we leverage Christ. It is the means in which Christ leverages us as he conforms us into his image and brings others along with us. This is so important for us to understand The disbelief of the Jews is not a dismissal of Christ's saving power. While in this moment they do not believe he is Christ, it is not just a dismissal that Christ can save. They believe that the Messiah, when he came, would save, which makes them all the more foolish that they have seen and heard Christ has saved, he has risen, he has performed miracles. They're denoting themselves here. They're shooting their own arguments now. Nevertheless, their disbelief is not a dismissal of Christ, is it a rejection of him? It is a rejection of Christ as the Messiah altogether. These are people that know the scriptures yet deny its author. Why is this? Why do we fall in the same boat at times and knowing the scriptures as I do believe we do here? and knowing the truth of the gospel, and even then some in the confessions that God has blessed us with in the church, and knowing that we need to do certain things, above all, seek God's will to evangelize, to minister. Why is it, though, that we can miss the boat on loving the God of the scriptures? I would say it's the same case for the Jews in that their knowledge does not spur them to love God, but rather to reach his level of glory. 
leading to hard hearts that would rather follow Moses than the Christ that Moses followed. We see this here in the text as it continues on in Deuteronomy 18. Again, mark it down if you would for yourself. Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 18. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is also echoed in John 1:45 that we read earlier on. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The same scrolls, the same scriptures that these Jews would have read and understanding that Jesus, the one standing in front of them, would come to perform these works as was prophesied by John the Baptist and Moses who they followed wholeheartedly. Why is it then that they are in a position where their minds are informed, that they know what seems to be right, yet they are bearing a half-hearted witness about the Christ standing in front of them? I would posit again that they do not see Christ as the cornerstone of their life, but another tool that they can use in their life. That they do not see the scriptures as the basis of their entire being, but instead just see it as something to inform their minds. That they do not see the ministry they have been given in the scriptures, in themselves, as to love God, to love one another, and instead was to preserve the scrolls for themselves, to shut up truth, and to keep it as a some sort of hierarchy. For us today, we must understand, as I say again, that it is not improper for us to desire Christian excellency. It's not wrong to have a holy ambition. It's not wrong to dream big. You guys should know me well enough to know that I believe Christians should be in the front of that line, that we should be the most ambitious people, not in a secular sense, but that we actually trust our God will deliver us from anything, that he has prepared a way, that he will lead us into it, that he will deliver us as he has time and time again. We should be the most ambitious. And knowing Christ's excellence example, we should strive after Christian excellency. And knowing the value of God's word, we should desire to be in it every single day. We should desire to speak about it with one another. We should desire to leverage it in all of our lives, that it would shape our lives. We should memorize it, that we could go out and evangelize. We should use it as a platform to do ministry in the local area. Even in conversation with the elders and that you will be privy to here soon, we should use it to partner with the city to serve as we got to see a glimpse of in Caring Solutions. We should use it to be around one another in a setting where we act as a family. But I need us to understand and glean from the text this morning that if we do all of that, if we do all of that, all that is right and, and proper and everything that is commanded of us, if we do all of it, and we're doing it with half-hearted devotion and witness about Christ, then we are heaping condemnation on ourselves. That we are in no different abode than the Jews Christ is talking to here. The difference is this. When we approach God, how do you plan to leave? I mean this in your prayer time and your devotion. 
in your time of worship with us every Sunday morning, when you approach God, because that's what we do here as a church, when we come together before God, how are you planning on leaving? Is it with more knowledge? Is it with more of a zeal to serve? Is it with a better understanding of one another? A new relationship, lunch plans. All these things are right and proper and necessary. Yet if we miss the boat on the supreme love of God that we must have, we will absolutely miss the love that we need to have for one another. And if we miss those two things, we fail at the first and greatest commandment. And everything we do, though God may redeem it for his will and his glory, is hollow to our own end. Verses 45 through 47. Verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here we see the effects of a half-hearted witness stacked up against Christ's wholehearted witness. The Jews are caught in their own lies here. As I said, they are bearing false witness of Christ and in doing so, a false witness about themselves. They uh, propose themselves to be a people that know the word, that believe what Moses wrote about, yet here they are denying what Moses wrote about as we just read. This is one of the first marks of scripture we see in which we cannot love God without loving his word as the Jews are seeking to do. In the same way, we cannot truly love God's word until we love God. And just both and and one cannot happen without the other. As we see in verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Verse 47, but you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? The same can be said of us today is that if we believe the scriptures, we will believe Christ. Yet if we do not believe Christ, we cannot actually say we believe his writings. This plays out in the same sense in our daily disbelief. And it is, friends, not because of our own, yes, while it is a part weakness, our flesh that we wear is so volatile and fickle. It is a daily battle against disbelief. Even to the Monday work example, although it is a small one in the scope of eternity, all the way up to unsaved family members. Do we believe that Christ can save? And here's the deeper question. Do we believe that he is good even if he doesn't? If we believe the scriptures, then we must believe that. And if we believe that, then we must believe the scriptures that attest to that. Do we believe that God will raise up his church? Do we believe that he will do that in and through us? If we believe his word, then we must believe that. If we believe him, then we must believe his word to that end. Do you guys get the picture here in that Christ's word and Christ's example go hand in hand? And that if we say we believe one, we would do well to make sure we are in a position where we can say in clean conscience that we believe the other. In doing life with you guys, I would say we have no problem saying we believe in the truth of scripture. I would say not just for us, but in the church today, the rubber meets the road when we must apply that truth in a full, wholehearted witness 
that says we believe Christ is sufficient. And not just that, but that we love God above all. And that we love God above our spouses, above one another, above our jobs, above this earth, its comforts, even the contentment and the blessings of a God, that we love God more than all of it. This is what's required of us as Christians. This is what puts us on the road to living as Christ lived, that we could be in a position and full on recognize there is something we don't want to do. That we are in the midst of a people who hate us, whether they know it or not, because they hate our God. And yet we can bear full witness to them, that we can love them. And even with one another, that we can frustrate one another and that we can heal and love one another and do it even when we don't want to. That we can go and evangelize, not from a place of building up our own kingdom, a sandcastle kingdom, but building up the kingdom of God. The difference between a wholehearted devotion, a wholehearted witness, and a half-hearted witness about Christ. Not to oversimplify it, but to perhaps see that we can glean this from Scripture. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 2, verses 2 through 4. Revelation 2, verses 2 through 4. As we've seen so far in the close of John 5 here, Christ's stark warning for those he's speaking to and reminding them that either they must adhere to what they say they believe or denounce. And understand that if they do not believe their scriptures, they're showing it right now and that they do not believe Christ is who he says he is. But they say they believe, so their feet are held to the fire. It's the same for us, that as we profess and as we chase after Christ, he too, out of love for his children, will hold our feet to the fire as we see here in Revelation 2 as the writing to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, verses 2 through 4. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pay attention to this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Church in Ephesus here is painted once again as a wonderful example that they are doing the works of the Lord, that they are pursuing him, they are serving one another, those around them. They are a model church. Why would Christ find indignation with them? It's because they lost their first love. They lost their first love. And what is that first love? If you would mark it for yourself, I believe Jeremiah 2.2 paints that. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and a land not sown. The first love for you as a Christian, as the hands and feet of Christ's body, as a member of his holy church, your first love must at all times be God the Father. We see this displayed in our text as Christ bears wholehearted witness, reserving nothing for himself, nothing for the world around him, and laying it all out there for his heavenly Father. We see this displayed. 
the peace that it allows, the courage that it allows in such a hostile conversation, the example of faith, of love. We must understand church, especially again as we prepare for the new year, as we continue to grow as a church, as we continue to be established in the ways of the Lord, as we lose fat from this body and our own uh, hang-ups and our own lack of discipline, as we grow closer together, as we seek to press on after the Father, we must understand this, that any work of faith that we seek to do that is not rooted in the works and words of Christ, that is not rooted in love for our Savior, is condemnation of our soul. This is because it launches us in a competition with the one who has already saved us. It paints us out to be liars and, and that we say we believe the scriptures, just not the God behind them and his goodness. Or vice versa, that we believe God is good, just not good in that area of scripture. This may seem daunting, it may seem like an eternity-sized fix, but I would point us back to the solution of the cross. The difference between a wholehearted devotion and a half-hearted devotion first starts with a new heart that is granted to us in Christ. And I would remind us all that that new heart was not granted to us by Christ looking down the halls of today and seeing our works or seeing our hurts or seeing how much we would need him. This was not where our new heart began. This is not where it was given. It was given to us because Christ first loved us. What then will we go on and do besides first love Christ above all? I will say this for us as church members, as a church, and for God's glory, that the Christian life is boiled down to recognizing God is who he says he is, both in his goodness and his wrath and his justice and in his direction that he leads the church. I do not hesitate to believe that many of us fill out the roles that the church has for us today, that you volunteer and that you check in on one another, that you serve and we are thankful to God for that. But I would ask you that if you are doing that or seek to do it out of a heart that is not first and foremost in loved, in awe, enthralled with God the Father, do not do it. Do not heap condemnation on yourself. Do not put yourself in a position to be made to be a liar. Instead, be encouraged by the charge of the church here in Revelation of Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. And there is no more better opportunity than the Lord's day in which we are about to partake in the Lord's Supper to do this, to grab a sister, a brother, and dig deep within our hearts as God has been searching this entire time and pull out the weeds that we may not even have known were there. We see that Jesus, the God-man, speaks as God the Father instructs, walks as he directs, and seeks to make much of his glory. This is because Jesus was near enough to hear the Father speak. This is because that he was so in love with the Father that he sought to follow close behind, and in Christ's case, was one in the same. And that he knew the greatest good in his life was God's glory and that there was no other way to rest in it, to speak on it, and to worship him than to be in wholehearted love with his Father. 
This is our charge as the church. Yes, that we would go seek and save the lost. Yes, that we would serve one another, that we would do all that God has planted in our hearts to do, that we would seek to have such a holy zeal and ambition. But we must not miss that our first and highest calling is the greatest commandment, that we would love the Lord our God with our entire being and in doing so, one another as well. Do we do this? Of course, not because our own works, but because the spirit within us would not allow anything other from his children. Can we do this all the more? Yes, absolutely, and that will be true every single day until we're called home to glory. Our charge this morning, believe God's word, love his word, and love him to be in step. Understand that God's discipline here to the Jews is not in all the ways the same that he gives to us as his children. And please do not throw yourself in the competition with Christ that you would seek to serve, to save one another, those in the world without first loving the God who has saved you. You cannot miss this as a church and you for your joy's sake in this life as your charge is to enjoy God forever you cannot miss out on the commandment that the love for God that we must have must be first and foremost as it was for God to his church. That this is the difference between bearing a wholehearted witness that we believe our father is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do in our lives and in his church. It must mean also that we are near enough to listen, that we are in tune enough to follow as he directs and that we are so unabashedly devoted to his glory that we seek to put it on display in every area of our life, including one another. Amen. Amen. Father, be with us to that end, that we would humble ourselves under your word and that we would seek to love you above all. I pray that we would see the distinction between wholehearted witness about you and half-hearted witness is your grace. And I pray that we would not deny your grace in lieu of our own knowledge, our own spiritual stature, that we would see without you, we have nothing. That if we can read for two Sundays in a row, Christ himself, the Messiah, the God-man, say, without the Father, I can do nothing. I pray we would understand how even more so those words fall on us as broken people. We confess now, God, to you, that without you, We can do nothing. And we lift our praise to you now, soon through song, and in the taking of your Lord's Supper, and that we do not have to, that you have come, that you have sent your Son. And as you say in Matthew 3, 17, it is your Son with whom you are well pleased. And as your Son delivers us unto you, We rejoice and humble ourselves and pray that we would understand the weight of what it means for you to be pleased with us. We thank you for your grace and your kindness as you deal patiently with your church, with your sheep, and bringing them back in. And we pray that you would continue to do so all the more. We pray this in Christ's name according to your will and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.